All right. Hard to believe this is the ninth session in Old Testament survey. The ninth. We only have three more after this. Of course, we'll take a break next week for Thanksgiving. So we're not on for Thanksgiving. And then we're going to try to cover all 16 prophets in three weeks. Yeah, my schedule is to do five, six, and five. So let's see if I can pull that off. But to do that, we've got to do Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and give you an introduction to the prophets tonight. And we'll pray that we can get that done. And let's start by asking God to give us a good study tonight. And thank you, by the way, for being here. It's an encouragement to my heart to see you here every week, your interest in the Old Testament. Some of you commenting just as I'm walking around that this is an edifying experience for you. That's an edifying thing for me to hear. So I appreciate that. Thanks for being good students of the word. Let's pray. God, we do thank you very much for your word. We know even as the book we'll study tonight tells us that to acquire wisdom, it's calling out for us, but we've got to seek it out. We've got to search it out. We've got to go after it. You tell us like someone hunting and digging and searching for gold and uh, treasure. And so God, make us diligent as students to understand your word, not just what it says, but how it should be applied to our lives. Give us that kind of insight. Even tonight as we study wisdom literature and the wisdom poetry literature in the scripture, thank you so much for the many genres of the Bible, the varied kinds of, of ways that you speak to us, even the varied topics that we'll look at tonight. I know that uh, it really stretches our understanding of you and the totality of your knowledge of who we are and the whole life interest you have in us to be godly people. So God, help us to be sanctified increasingly so because of our time in the word together tonight. Thanks for this crowd. Encourage them and and fuel them spiritually because of our time together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Would be really bad of me not to give you one more quick quiz. So let's do that. There are 11 timeline books in the Bible. And the first one you know is Genesis. And if we had to have one word to summarize the book of Genesis, is actually what the word Genesis means, we would say it is the word beginnings. And if we had to have a key chapter that would be most important, that would stand above all the other ones, it would be chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, there is a very important thing, and it is called the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those that oppose you, uh, curse you, I will curse. And through your lineage and the descendancy of your life through you, through your seed, so to speak, to use New Testament language, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Second timeline book is the book of Exodus. And it is to be summarized with this word we pick. The, the word is deliverance. And the chapter that we should note is chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, there was something very important that was instituted to commemorate the thing that was happening. And that was the first Passover was celebrated. Very good. And they left Egypt. The third timeline book is the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, is that a happy book or a sad book? That's a sad book. That's a sad book because they were busy doing what? Wandering around. And in chapter, a very important chapter, something happens. What's the chapter? 14. And God is testing them and they didn't do well. But where did that take place? It was the test of faith where? At Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea. The next timeline book, timeline book number four, is the book of, is the book of Joshua. You can be confident in that. And the key word, if we were to take one word and describe Joshua, we would say it's the word conquest. And if we had to pick a chapter, very important, uh, if they were going to divide and conquer the land, you're going to start in the middle and the stronghold in the middle of that. uh, You're going to deal with that city in what chapter? Six. And what city was it? Jericho, the battle of Jericho. Timeline book number five is the book of Judges, the book of Judges. If we had to have one word to describe Judges, it would be failure because it was full of failure. And did they wait a long time to start that failure? No, they started early on. What chapter? Was it chapter one? Chapter two. Very good. And what, what do we say started then? Cycle of sin begins. Timeline book number six is the book of 
1 Samuel. It's the book of 1 Samuel. And the word that was going to describe that in our study is the word monarchy. Monarchy. And what chapter did that begin in? Chapter 8. And who was the first king? Saul. Saul becomes the first king. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel. Those are our first six timeline books. Timeline book number 7 is the book of 2 Samuel. And if we needed a word to describe 2 Samuel, it would be David. In one word, David. And there's a very important chapter in 2 Samuel. And it's chapter 7 because something happens in chapter 7. And it is the, the Davidic covenant. God makes a promise to David. And that promise was that through your descendants, again, we would have one sit on the throne. And that idealized king that would come that we learn about in, uh, in the New Testament. And we celebrate at Christmas the one who sits on David's reigning throne, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Not quite yet, but he's earned the right, and he will take that power and begin to reign. Number eight. The eighth timeline book is the book of First Kings. And if we needed one word to describe that, we would pick the word division, because we have the kingdom dividing. In what chapter? Twelve. And Israel splits into how many parts? Two. Very good. Timeline book number nine is the book of Second Kings. And if we needed a word to describe that, it would be captivity. And since the kingdom split in two, we'd need two key chapters to describe that. And those would be chapters 17 and 25. So we got captivity 17 and 25. And that's just obvious. The north falls and the south falls. What year did the north fall? 721 BC. What year did the south fall? 586. Who was the bad guy country in the north in 721? It was the country of the kingdom of Assyria, and who was the bad guy uh, nation in the south in 586? Babylon, and who was the king of Babylon? And name at least one captive that was taken captive that you know. Daniel. Okay. Then we have a captivity in Babylon for how many years? 70 years. We call it the captivity. We call it the exile. You can call it the doghouse. You call it whatever you want, but it's a bad time for Israel. They were in trouble. After the Babylonian captivity, you have two other timeline books, and that's it. That's the whole scope of Old Testament chronology. And the first book is the book of Ezra. And if we had to pick a word to describe that book, it would be the word temple. And in what chapter would I want to highlight in my Bible? Chapter six. What happened in chapter six? Foundation of the temple was laid. And there they began to celebrate that God was restoring the people. Spiritual things before political things. And that's exactly what we see laid out. What's the next timeline book? Nehemiah. We're going to deal with some political things, some uh, protection that they needed. And the word that we're going to use to describe all that's going on there is the word Walls. What chapter is important for us? Six, because what happened in chapter six? The walls were completed. And how long did that take? How long did that take? 52 days. Very good. Well, tonight we're going to deal with the book of Proverbs. Wisdom literature. We're going to deal with the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs shouldn't be a lot of confusion about this, although Bible scholars always are they're always available to confuse us on various things, but if we just take the word of God at face value, it seems very obvious who the author is. If you read the first verse of the book, it would say this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Well, maybe that's just the first part of the book. Well, when we start all the really concise, terse statements of wisdom in chapter 10, again, we have this statement. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. And then all the way through chapter 25, verse 1, it says, oh, we got more Proverbs. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah king of Judah copied. So we see this coming together as a collection of Proverbs, even all the way into Hezekiah's day. But the bulk of these Proverbs were credited to and assigned to as being originated with King Solomon. 
And of course, that matches the narrative that we have in 1 Kings. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He even starts naming people in that passage. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. So we have a lot less proverbs here recorded for us than apparently he was known to be reciting to people in his training of his princes and leaders and his songs even. You think David... I wrote a lot of songs. Here we have songs attributed to Solomon 1005. I mean, that's like the production of Charles Wesley. That's a lot of songs being attributed to Solomon. Why do you, do you think God granted him all that wisdom? Because he asked for it. Remember at the beginning of his reign? Ask whatever you want. And he says, I need wisdom to govern this people. And God said, I'm going to give it to you. And he gave it to him in large measure. And this is one snapshot that God has recorded for us of the wisdom of Solomon. But that's not all. You get to chapter 30, and then we start a new section. It says the words of Egur, the son of Jacoth. The words of Egur, son of Jacoth. So I've got a chapter in chapter 30 that starts a whole new section, and they're attributed to someone who's not Solomon. Well, who is Egur, son of Jacoth, you ask? That's what you're going to ask, right? Who is that? And I'm teaching Old Testament service. So I should say, well, here's who he was. The problem is, I have no idea. And, and, and neither does anyone else. Yet to be discovered who in the world this was. In chapter 31, we also start a new heading. Uh, these are the words of King Lemuel. And you would say, who is that? King of what? Well, there's lots of theories on that. You can read about those, Bible dictionaries or Bible handbooks. But uh, there seems to be no clear consensus on it. And so we don't know. But we do know we have two other authors that are assigned the last two chapters of the book. Only 31 chapters of Proverbs. So we know we've got those three authors, Egur, Lemuel, and Solomon. The date. Well, you should remember that Solomon's reign took place in the 10th century BC. So the exact dates for that would be 971 to 931. Now I say that's the origins of the prophecies. We see some being collected all the way down into Hezekiah's day, but still we know that they found their origins, at least uh, chapters 1 through 29, in the lifetime of Solomon. And since we assume this all came about at, at various times throughout his reign, we just give a big window here. He's got uh, many years to write these Proverbs. And the reason he was excelling, at least humanly speaking, in all these things is because it was peacetime, because his dad was a warrior, and his dad secured the borders. And so he was, as I often say, born with that silver spoon in his mouth, and he was able to enjoy peacetime. And because of that, he excelled in scholarship, of course, because of God's endowment of grace in his life. The purpose of the book is very clear. After knowing who the author is in chapter 1, verse 1, we then have verses 2 through 7 to tell us what it's all about. What's this book about? The Proverbs of Solomon, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, so interactions with other people, in righteousness, this has something to do with something moral and ethical, justice, what's right and equitable, and equity, to give prudence to the simple. So if you're not very smart, God says, here are the Proverbs that will help make you a wise person. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Your children should be acquainted with the book of Proverbs. If you don't know what else to teach your kids, you don't need to go to the Christian bookstore and buy the latest and greatest method of raising your kids. Don't even need raising men, not boys. Just go and take the book of Proverbs and teach it to your children. Anyone can learn from this. It says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who has understanding, obtaining guidance, you could be the smartest person in the room, the wisest person in the room. You're going to get more wisdom from this book. It says that's the purpose of it, to understand a proverb and a saying and the words of the wise and their riddles. Some of them are hard to decipher, not just because of the historical distance between now and those days, but some of them are certainly uh, helping you to explore the depths of what God had in mind by those proverbs. And here's the theme, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the one. I mean, if we, ha- if we picked key words for Old Testament non-timeline books, you might, I mean, you'd have to say wisdom, obviously, for Proverbs, but then you'd have to add the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Now, non-Christians are afraid of God whenever they are afraid of God, and they should be afraid of God because they're fearing the fact that their sin is one day going to find them out. They're going to stand before God, and they're going to be retributed for their sin. They're going to be punished for their sin with an exacting kind of angry judgment from God, and that should make you afraid. You should be very afraid of that if you're not under the grace of Jesus Christ having had him absorb the penalty for you. But that's not the fear we're talking about here. And though we don't have a lot of good books written these days about the fear of God, we should have some others that should be written to help us distinguish between the kind of fear that 1 John says we're not supposed to have because we have our sins forgiven. And it is, as Romans 8 verse 1 says, that there's no condemnation. We can look forward to no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's not the fear that we're talking about in the book of Proverbs. And yet there is another kind of fear, a kind of fear that you would have, as, as the Puritans like to distinguish it, that you would have of a father, a father who is a disciplinarian, a father who is honored and respected in your mind, and you should seek to please him and not displease him. And, and those are the kinds of, of, of the uneasiness, and that's what fear is. It's the unsettled feeling that we have in our gut that feeling should be part of your Christian life. As the Bible often says, the ways of, as it says in Proverbs, the ways of a man are in plain sight of God. God sees all the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place seeing the evil and the good. Or as Hebrews says in the New Testament, nothing has changed. We ought to know that the word of God ought to be our highest prized possession and the thing that we seek to know the best because it's all laid our lives out before God, the one to whom we're given account. It's, it's wide open. That's why the word of God does its work to help us with our motives in our heart and change our behavior because we're going to have to give an account to God. Fear of God. Much could be said about that, but that is certainly the purpose of the book. In a phrase, it's to impart wisdom. If you were to define wisdom, I would give you this definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the application, and I happen to like that book, wrote my doctoral dissertation on application, the application of God's truth. It's a very important thing we need to think about in our minds and in our hearts that God doesn't want us to know a lot of things about him and have it in there. He wants us to know a lot of things about him and about life as it relates to what he thinks is right and just and equitable, and we ought to put it into practice. And that's what wisdom is, the application of God's truth. Or as others have said, my Old Testament prof like to put it, it's the skill of living life is the way he put it. And I like to make sure we qualify that a righteous life, not the life defined as the life by our culture, our generation, or society, but the skill of living a righteous life. You ought to become skillful at that. And the only way you're going to do that is to seek to apply God's word. Now, Proverbs, I don't want to just gloss over that because we need to define what that is. Proverbs, even if you looked it up in an English dictionary, is a brief, some kind of terse. Oftentimes they're clever, but they're brief. They're, they're condensed, memorable expressions of general truths. And that's an important thing for us to get in our minds right now as we think about the Proverbs of Solomon. We need to know that these are distilled, memorable, I think certainly they were for memorization, of general truths. They advise us, here's a general principle, here's a general truth. They warn us, if you do that, here's what's going to happen. It's a general truth. It's something that is going to probably likely take place. There's a connection, a sowing and reaping connection, and it ought to motivate us. 
That's what these proverbs are. Now, you've got to distinguish general truths from guaranteed promises. You understand the difference there? There are promises in the scripture that are guaranteed promises. This and this and this are guaranteed to, to lead to this result. And, and, and those are the things we say are the clear and distinct promises of God. When God says in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, we know that's going to happen as a guaranteed promise. God made a very specific promise about a specific situation. And there's lots of those regarding your life and mine. Hebrews likes to remind us that God is a God who keeps his promises to us specifically his promises his specific promises they're guaranteed to us they're guaranteed on oath to us proverbs are general principles to advise us to admonish us to warn us to motivate us and there are distinctions in the way we need to read the proverbs and the way you would read a covenant of specific truths that are given to you for instance, some people will read Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. And they'll say right there, I, I went about my business as a good Christian parent, I trained up my child in the way they, they should go, but you know what? They're old now, and they've departed from it. And you know what? That certainly can happen. That is a general truth. It's a principle. And you teach that as God teaches that to us as a father, just like a parent would teach a child. If you do this, this is going to happen. doesn't mean it happens every time without exception, but it's a principle. And if you learn to understand that a proverb is a general principle that is given to us to warn us, to advise us, to motivate us, to admonish us, then we won't sit here and say, I'm claiming that promise. The difference between a promise and a general truth. In that same passage, two verses earlier, Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Well, read Job chapter 1 and 2, which we did not long ago. At least we referenced the story. He was a man who had humility. He had the fear of the Lord, but all of his riches and all of his honor and almost his life was wiped out just about. And we'd say, well, that's an exception to the rule. It's a general rule. And it's true. Teach my kids, uh, here's what God would want of you when they're little. You've got three buckets or, or, or plastic cups on your shelf. One's for God, one's for savings, one's for spending. And you learn to do this. You honor God with your wealth and you save money. All these principles come from the Bible. You spend what's left on whatever you need in your life. And you know what? You will do well in life, generally speaking. And sure enough, as they did this from the time they were little, they saved up money to be able to do things some of their peers couldn't do because they saved year after year after year after year after giving to God. And I said, those principles will generally result in this kind of thing happening. And I could only tell them this is a general truth because anything could have happened. They, all kinds of things could have happened in their life or in their family's life, their sister's life, my life, to where all that they had saved would have been drained out of their account. Just like Job had his, his wealth and his personal uh, property stolen and taken away. That can happen. But this is a general principle. And, and Generally, it, it is the way things go. It's to motivate, admonish us, instruct us, to warn us, to motivate us, general principles. It does not detract from their inspired value. You know that. God breathed value. It's like parents teaching their children anything from experience. You might tell them, if you do this, this will happen. A coach to a player on a baseball team, if you do this, this will happen. It doesn't happen every time, but it happens more often than not as a general rule. All right, I made that clear. Some people come to me with an open Bible. They point to Proverbs. They say, God ripped me off. He said this and it didn't happen. And I'm trying to make the distinction here between a, what a proverb is and a promise. Two different things. The outline of the book, which I can't say much, but there is at least a few distinctions I think we should make and come away with. Let's take this first section, chapters 1 through 29, and at least divide it in half. 
Wisdom's value in the first nine chapters, and if you've read through Proverbs more than once, I hope you've started to pick up on the fact that the first nine chapters are a lot different than, than chapters 10 through 31. Yeah, they are a lot different. Matter of fact, they are incredibly different in terms of at least the topics you'll see in chapter two, a topic that'll go on for 11, 12, 13, 14 verses. Well, that's not how it is after chapter 10. So this is a, a set of instructions regarding wisdom's value. It speaks of wisdom personified as a, a woman calling out to people. And then there's contrasted to the kinds of sin that you can fall into. And we speak of the adulterous woman in that, in that context, which represents not only adultery, but several other things that might be tempting in terms of compromise in our lives. And these things become these themes that run throughout chapters in the first nine chapters. Uh, you don't have that after chapter 10 uh, or after chapter 9. You have in chapter 10 through 29, certainly under Proverbs that are accredited to Solomon, you have miscellaneous Proverbs. They're short, they're terse. We go from one topic, and sometimes I guess we'll see a couple of verses, a couple of Proverbs that are linked together in theme, but you can't really find rhyme or reason to it couple books. I don't I didn't even plan to do this, but if you study the Proverbs, two of my friends wrote two books on the topic. One is, uh, I think his name is uh, Neuheiser, not a very good friend if I hardly remember his name, <laughs> but I, I do know him. Drop my name. He'll, I hope he'll remember me. Wrote a book called Opening Up Proverbs. It's part of a series, but if you want to study Proverbs in a way that is thematic, you're going to have to go through there and extract Proverbs and throw them into buckets, and there are books like that that will help. I I taught a few sermons on Proverbs a few years back, you might remember, and I picked Proverbs on, for instance, fear of God. I picked Proverbs on uh, work ethic, and and I can take those Proverbs, and I'm going all over the book to create a a kind of well-rounded set of instructions from Proverbs. Uh, Neuheiser's book will do that. It's called uh, Opening Up Proverbs, and then your friend, too, is Mayhew, Dr. Mayhew. Yes, my good friend, Dick Mayhew. Mayhew... Dr. Mayhew wrote a book on Proverbs, and it's something you'll find on Amazon if you type in Proverbs and Mayhew. I don't remember the title of it. Someone can look it up for me real quick, but you'll find it. Dr. Mayhew, he did basically the same thing, even in more detail. Neuheiser put these things in general categories. He got like eight or nine chapters in that book, but Dr. Mayhew's book is uh, very detailed. What's the name of it? Someone looked it up? No? No one looked it up. Okay. Mayhew and Proverbs. What's it called? The Better Way. What's the subtitle? So a study in Proverbs, there you go. I didn't make it up, it's out there. 30 and 31, if you know the book, I suppose the things that jump out of those two chapters, as you know, the Proverbs 31 woman is in the last chapter. You know that screed on alcohol is in chapter 30. I don't know, those are the things you usually remember, or I do at least, in those two chapters. But remember, those are not Proverbs from Solomon. So that, I mean, we're trying to make the simplest outlines I can give you for these books. So that's the best we can do here for a brief outline of Proverbs. I did a men's Bible study, which I'm sure is available out there somewhere. I went through 10 different things from the book of Proverbs on the fear of God. That was an expansion of anything I did in the main service, but that, I enjoyed that study. I don't know if it came out any, I don't know if it turned out well, but just to go through the whole book and look at the fear of God as a theme that goes from beginning to end and how many promises, or I should say Proverbs, are connected to the fear of God in the book. I don't know if you want to look that one up. Ecclesiastes. That's the book of Proverbs. By the way, Proverbs would be good for you to go through it as often as you can if you have kids. I, I, I mean, we've been having our kids read them through the Bible when they were little before they could even read to listen to it. So they've been through the Bible every year. But 
I even think before we got them doing that, we would at least try to get them listening to or hearing the Proverbs. Because there's 31, you can have one a day, right, in the calendar. And it's not a bad idea. If you feel like you're not as familiar with the Proverbs as you should, take the next three months and read through Proverbs. I know you're doing the DVR, which is great, but read through Proverbs, one, one chapter per day, and you'll get more acquainted with the book of Proverbs. So you can say, okay, what is it today? Seventh, 16th, we read the 16th Proverb before we go to bed tonight. And then, speaking of the DVR, I get to read the book of Ecclesiastes on my birthday every year. Start the book of Ecclesiastes every September 17th, which is always depressing for me. Because <laughs> it's not a happy book. But well, whatever. It's a good book. Who's the author? Well, uh, the author, I... Uh, think should be clear to us by looking at things, although, as I said, scholars love to debate all this, and they've got lots of reasons for debating as they do, but good for us to recognize that it seems pretty clear based on the autobiographical description, and certainly right out of the gate, we know it can be narrowed down to someone who's a descendant of David and a king, and we have, what, 40 of those that we can choose from, I guess 42, 41 of those to choose from, no, 21 of those to choose from, thank you. It starts this way, the words of the preacher, which is the word that has really become the word that names this book all the way back to the Septuagint, I think is when it started, third, second century, third century BC. Uh, actually, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, started to be written in the mid third century BC, and it started with the Pentateuch, which I think was finished in 251 BC and, or 250 BC, but it took a while until Ecclesiastes was translated into Greek. And why was it translated into Greek? Because Alexander the Great said every great book in the world needs to be written in Greek. That's our language. So let's take that great book of uh, the Jewish people and let's put that into Greek. And so in Alexandria, Egypt, they translated that book. And a lot of what we have in the Bible in terms of titles of books, uh, even sometimes headings in certain places, uh, it traces its way back to the second and third century BC when the Septuagint was translated into Greek. Uh, and the abbreviation for that is LXX. I'm getting off on this, uh, off the topic, but LXX, which is the Latin or the Roman numeral for 70, because the tradition was there were 70, on some say 72, uh, but 70 translators who worked on that for the Hellenistic Library in Alexandria. Anyway, what does that word mean? Hebrew professors, mine at least, would say, hey, we don't know exactly what the word means. It means collector, maybe. It's, it's a strange word. It translates in this passage, preacher. It's used in this book exclusively. No other place in the Old Testament that we have this, or New Testament, we have this word. Translates preacher here, but it's someone who's collecting things, much like Solomon collected his Proverbs. At the end, it talks about the sayings, uh, you know, of, of the preacher, of the wise, are, are like well-driven nails. He's a, he's a collector, he's a preacher, he's a speaker, he's a, a teacher, but he's the son of David. And if he's the direct first descendant of the son of David and king in Jerusalem, then we know it's Solomon. Well, in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, you see a lot of statements about who he is, being king over Israel in Jerusalem, and he starts to speak of all of his wealth and all of his grandeur. And of course, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, he acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart had the great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And those are key attributes of Solomon, who was known as being the wisest and certainly the greatest in the short history of Israel at that time in terms of the monarchy, and no one surpassed him after that time. So if this is an absolute statement, which we can assume that it is, I think we are stuck with the fact that this indeed is Solomon who wrote it. First Kings 11 verse 4, 
would tell us why the content can be written by Solomon. It's such a dark-themed book, as we'll see in a minute, because it says in 1 Kings eleven four that when Solomon was old, his wives had turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So this book is about, as you know, that theme and that Hebrew word vanity or, or uselessness or purposelessness or futility. And that word that's repeated, I think, 30 some odd times in the book of Ecclesiastes is a word that is given to us as the author's experience of his own life. He autobiographically speaks of pursuing all these things and finding them futile. Well, it would only make sense uh, if indeed he was someone who departed from, from God's path of righteousness, the wisdom that he stood for. And certainly as he writes this wisdom book, he does so with a sad kind of of look at what happened here when I tried everything else but what I should have been investing in. So Solomon, as it has been traditionally held, is the author. All right. The date, if he dies in 931, which of course he does, that's the end of his reign. Uh, He probably did this near the end of his life because of how things were said to have fallen apart for him spiritually near the end of his life, with at least enough of a rebound to write this book which doesn't end with a glowing spiritual report, but it does get us back to what's important. You know, kind of the memoirs of a king who invested in a lot of the wrong things in the second half of his reign. So somewhere near 931 B.C. Purpose of the book, we'll quote a little bit here from chapter 12, is to show that the futility of life apart from God. Of course, he had the knowledge of God. He even boasts of his wisdom early in the book, but he's living his life in a way that he says, ultimately, it's, it's futile, it's vanity. And he can say it from experience. And even though we hear people's testimonies like that, we don't believe it when people stand up and say, I had all this, I had all the money, I had all the fame, I had all the women, I had the sports cars, but it was nothing once I got all that. And in a sense, this is the Old Testament version of that kind of testimony, that it doesn't do what you think it will do, and it's all chasing after the wind, and it's useless. But at the end of the book, of course, he does say, listen, when it comes down to it, actually the last two chapters get to this theme, the end of the matter has been heard, it is about God. And you ought to fear him, which is the theme of the book of Proverbs. It matches so well with the wisdom of Proverbs that had been neglected for a season of his life that he now reflects on and says, no, it is about that. It's about fearing God and doing what he says, keeping his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Everything else is useless. Nothing really matters. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you read the book carefully and thoughtfully, you'll see that Ecclesiastes isn't just a dark book. As a matter of fact, there are many things that encourage me in my birthday week when I read this, and and that is that you're to enjoy the gifts that God gives you. But it does so with a sense of of detachment and almost a a sense of of being dispassionate because in in a sense, gifts are just gifts from God and all you can do with gifts is enjoy them. You cannot find meaning in them. You can't find life in them. And so many people do that. And so Christians really are freed uh, as we read this book, certainly having our lives, I trust, right with God to say we're the ones that are free to really enjoy the gifts when everyone else is trying to suck the meaning of life out of them. And we're not. We may have the same things that a non-Christian has that he's trying to find his significance in and, and we find our significance in God and our relationship with God and we can now be freed up to enjoy whatever God brings. Whether our lot is a lot or a little, whether we have good health or bad health, we can say this is our lot and we're okay with that. And this even is without a really developed eschatological view, at least from a human author's perspective, of what comes after life. Even this statement, in what sense is God going to bring it into judgment? In this life or in the next life? That's a really good question. And to what extent he saw beyond this life, as a human author at least, we know God's spirit knows what's, what's coming. But the idea here of him saying, really, we realize what really matters is, is my connection with God. And, and 
that is fascinating in terms of how much more knowledge and light we have about how useful it is, how important it is for us to say, as Paul did, it doesn't matter. I've learned the secret of contentment, whether having a lot or a little, being in need or, or having an abundance. And, and that is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean I can hit home runs and lose weight and everything else everyone thinks that verse means, but that I can have my relationship with God settled. My significance and my importance is settled in, in, in Christ. And therefore, the rest of it is gravy or an annoyance, but it's not the meaning of life. The outline of the book, at least the way I outline it, is the first four chapters, and it is varied, but let's, I put it this way. The pointlessness, which again, I'm, you, I'm seeking the, the synonym there for vanity, vanity, chasing after the wind. It's the pointlessness of self-gratification, which is what I'm trying to express here in the last paragraph or two. You and I cannot find life in the things that we experience, whether it is pleasure, wisdom, beauty, whatever it is. It's, it's going to leave us dry. As C.S. Lewis said, if we ultimately, after that kind of wise pondering of our engagement with the world's things, find that our hearts cannot be satisfied with that and, and the things of this world, then clearly, to paraphrase Lewis, then we were made for another other world and not this one. And that is where really the book of Ecclesiastes ends. So in the middle, you'll find, as a matter of fact, if you read it carefully in September or you read it anytime you want in Proverbs, you'll find, or in uh, Ecclesiastes, you'll find this section that starts to sound a lot like the Proverbs in the middle of the book. We kind of hit here and go there and we deal with all kinds of life observations and Proverbs that, were, that are teaching us and admonishing us and warning us. And that there in that center section of the book, chapters five through 11. Then of course, as I've already given a nod to here, the end of the book is, hey, and it's an exhortation to live for God, keeping our connection with God and our understanding of who God is, living our life before God, before the face of God, as theologians like to say. That, that is how we are to live, chapters 11 and 12. So there's a brief outline. It is a good book. It's a good book for the thoughtful among us. And there are some people that are blessed, as he says in the book, to enjoy God's gift and not ponder the days of their life. Sometimes I admire you if you can live that way. But for those of us that are more reflexive and look at life in a more philosophical way at times, this can be a book that lets you know you're not crazy, that there's a way to look at life with that kind of sobriety that even the Apostle Paul had to say, the world is crucified to me and I to it in, in Galatians 6. And I think you can find great encouragement to to prioritize your life by reading the book of Ecclesiastes, which, by the way, is the word, if you know our divisions of theology, we talk about ecclesiology, that's the word, ecclesia, what's the Greek word ecclesia, how do you translate it? Church, right, it's the word church, and that's where it got its name through Greek, this is a Greek transliteration of that Hebrew word that we have translated, or others have in the Hebrew tradition, the preacher, the collector of sayings, but the, and that's the, that's the Greek expression of it, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the head of the, head of the church. All right. Then there's the Song of Solomon. Finally, we get to the Song of Solomon. Oh, I guess you're not junior hires. Okay, well, when I was a junior high, I just want to get to the Song of Solomon. The author of the Song of Solomon is, uh, of course, debated because everything is debated or it can't be worthy of study, I suppose. But I think the first verse should be clear to us to not give us a lot of uh, confusion. The Song of Songs, which even that in the text of the Hebrew opening of this book is big. This is like, this is the ultimate song. This is the Song of Songs. And there's so many titles for this. We call it the Song of Solomon. Maybe because of the length of that, there's a lot of optional titles to this. And one of them is this line, the Song of Songs, the ultimate song, uh, which is Solomon's. And, and certainly it's credited to him right out of the gate. And then he is the main actor in it. 
it. If you read through the book, chapter 3, verse 11, for instance, in this section says, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart, which is the theme, of course, of the book, is this romantic attraction, and it ends in the, the marriage ceremony and the honeymoon and then the problems in marriage and all the rest that goes on in the book. But here it's describing him. This is the player, and he's the main actor in this. And, of course, the dialogue of the poem is attributed to him, and it starts with, in verse 1, chapter 1, that it's Solomon's song. So who's the author? Solomon. I think you're safe to say that as you ought to be confident in what the Bible is telling us here. The date, of course, all I can tell you is the reign of Solomon's 971 to 931. Now, some scholars will say he wrote this early in his life because this was his marriage as trying to live by the Proverbs that are written in the early part of the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters, by saying this is a one-woman, one-man relationship, and this is to be celebrated. It's the context for sexual uh, amorous relationship. And so Solomon must have written this early in his life. And while that... I guess makes sense. I'm saying I, I've got no problem putting this near the end of his life because much like Ecclesiastes, he's recognized that multiplying wives and concubines is vanity and it's a waste of time. He says that in Ecclesiastes 3. So this could be a latter song and called the Song of Songs, the pinnacle of his songs, uh, in part because he's going back to what he longed for at the beginning of his, of his marital life when he was married to the Shulamite bride. Anyway, we don't know when. Somewhere in that reign of Solomon, he wrote this book. The purpose of the book has been much debated. And if you've grown up, as you have, I'm sure, in the 20th century church, you're not going to be surprised by what I think the song is all about. But if you went back in a time machine to almost any other time, you could even go back to the Protestant Reformation, and you're going to find you've got the minority view. And, And I just want to tell you, we have the minority view. I think it's the right view. If you have my view, we'll talk about it. But most of church history has said, well, this is an allegorical depiction of God and Israel. And of course, from a New Testament perspective, they'll say, well, it's Christ and the church. And others have even gone so far to say, the pietists of the you know, mystics, this is about you and Christ. So it's been a depiction and taught as a depiction, an allegorical depiction of God's love, who's called the husband, to Israel, who is in the Old Testament called his bride, his wife, And just like in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. And you see, okay, well, maybe that's what this is all about, a depiction of Christ and the church. The problem is allegory is a very scary way to handle your Bible. Because basically what you're saying is what it says on the surface is not what it means. We've got to find a meaning that's deeper underneath the the, the surface. And unfortunately, that became a pretty popular way to read the Bible because there are things on the surface we didn't much care for. And so if there's another way for us to read this, we'll find a way to read this. And at one point in scholarship and early in the church, I mean, early in the church, this was the dominant way to interpret the Bible is to find allegory everywhere because we had some precedent for it because even the apostle Paul in Galatians starts to take Hagar and Sarah and depict the two of them, even utilizing the word that we translate from Greek into English, allegory. And he says, look at these two. One represents you know, Zion and one represents you know, Jerusalem and, and the church and us and the good guys and the bad guys. And he says, look, this, this is a way to look at this. Uh, well, that may be, but even if the person that's the agency of God's God-breathed truth is going to say, here's something that works as an allegory of some Old Testament story. I'll let him do that as he's producing scripture. But for me to say, I'm going to teach you this scripture and I'm going to tell you this is what it means, though there's no indication that that's what it means in the text, is a dangerous way to, to treat the word. 
So all I'm saying, if you're going to view this with the kind of literalness as you find over in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, which is instruction as to how to avoid the adulteress, and that is, listen, you need to focus on, as the New Testament put it, be a one-woman kind of man, as everyone should be in trying to pattern their lives, as it says in 1 Peter 5, after the leaders of the church, and the leaders of the church are supposed to be focused on their spouse romantically and amorously, and so you want to avoid these pitfalls, then you need to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Stay faithful to your wife. Don't get divorced. Be faithful. Uh, A lovely deer. You ought to find the beauty in her. A graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That statement, if if you take that in Proverbs, it's hard to, to, to make that an allegory. And then you say, well, this whole book of Song of Solomon is about this. That's what it's about. And to say, well, that's an allegory. Of course, most of the church has done it. Why? Because they viewed sex as something antithetical to godliness. As a matter of fact, the more godly you were, the less sex you should have an interest in, the less sex you should have. So much so that by, what was it, 386, the Roman Catholic Church said, we're so convinced that sexlessness is godliness that you can't even be a preacher unless you're sexless. And so we're going to make all of our preachers now uh, take a vow of celibacy, and you can't even have leaders in the church that are celibate, uh, or that are married. Well, that hasn't worked out well, by the way, if you haven't noticed. As sexual beings and sexual creatures, as the Bible says, even this principle that I've tried to point out from you to you from Proverbs chapter 5, finds its way all the way into the New Testament instructions by the Apostle Paul, who was dealing with the Corinthian church that was thinking the same thing. To be godly would be to have no interest in sex, because that seemed very earthy and fleshly and base, and godliness is to be prayerful and transcendent and keeping our, our thoughts on things above, so I shouldn't have any interest in these things. And of course, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, no, that's not the right way to think about these things. As a matter of fact, let each man have his wife, which is a sexual reference, and let every wife have her husband, which is a sexual reference, and you should not deprive one another of this sexual relationship. Well, it's the same principle in Proverbs 5. It's the same principle that we have played out in a love song in the book of the Song of Solomon. So if you take it on its face value, it is a celebration of righteous sexuality, which for much of the early church was an oxymoron. There was no such thing as a righteous sexuality. Sexuality was inherently unrighteous. It was a concession. And you see, you can find fodder for that thought. You can fuel that thought by looking at the Apostle Paul in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, by saying, well, Paul said, basically, I'm single and that's better and I'd prefer you be single. Well, he's teaching a principle that Jesus taught that said, listen, it is more effective for you as a person to be sold out for the king to be without a domestic relationship. That's good. If you are not tied in a marriage to caring for your your spouse, as he says in 1 Corinthians 7, having your interest between spiritual things and God's kingdom and domestic things like paying for a mortgage and having an extra donkey or camel for your kids to ride on, if you're not dealing with all of that, you, you certainly are going to be more effective. But he says each one has his gift from God. And the juxtaposition there is the gift of celibacy, that you're comfortable and content as a single person, or what? Marriage. That's the context. Marriage is the gift. Sexuality is a gift. Contentment without sex is a gift. And both of those, he says, one man has one gift, another has another. And each man should be pleased and happy and content with, with which, whichever gift he has. Early church didn't think that way. And they thought righteous sexuality was an oxymoron. But that seems to be exactly what this is. Most of church history would not agree with that view. But it is the prevailing view today. Uh, and I do think it's the right view of the Song of Solomon. The outline of the book, which is very difficult for us. As a matter of fact, it's so difficult to outline that some people say it's a collection of love poems that were 
were put together from Solomon or from Solomon's you know, descendants. It is tough to follow. Uh, nevertheless, I did my best here. Attraction. They call it courtship in so many of these commentaries, which is funny to find the concept of courtship in this, in this book. Right out of the gate, they're making out in the first paragraph. Nevertheless, the point is they're falling in romantic love with one another in the first three chapters. It culminates in a wedding in the middle of the book, and then they encounter some challenges and the resolution of those challenges in marriage. And of course, a lot of that, it's all about their physical relationship and their love for one another and, of course, it gives us the proper context for love. There's so many things in here that are worth us understanding, although it's difficult to, to outline. But that's, that's my challenge for you there. Now, the interchange of characters in the poem is also difficult. There's clearly King Solomon as the character in the story. In your ESV, they try to sort out when he's speaking to you, and that is helpful. And they've gone to great lengths to do this, as a lot of translators have, just with those non-inspired titles, and that's helpful. And whenever you see the titles in the ESV, he, well, then you can understand because of what I've already shown you in chapter 3 and chapter 1, that's Solomon. Now, sometimes he's depicted as the shepherd and all we're saying is it does make sense in reading Ecclesiastes that you see that connection to the duality of how he went about his life, not only as a royal son, but as someone who had experience in the world. Nevertheless, the he seems to be a singular character, which is Solomon. Then you have the Shulamite bride. The titles there in the ESV then are she. Now, again, different translators, in their, when they're going to the effort of trying to tease out who's speaking which lines, uh, sometimes they'll title it differently, but your ESV translators, if you're using an English Standard Version, is going to title that with she, and that's the Shulamite, who comes from the working class, who at the beginning is feeling bad about herself because her skin is dark because she's out in the fields, which was a good thing today, right? They go spend a lot of money to go to tanning booths, but back then it was like, no, that's not a sign of royalty. If I'm really a proper, beautiful lady, I wouldn't have a tan, and so she's, but anyway, working class gal. Some actually think the Shulamite, because of the similarity of the word, may have been the girl that was conscripted to keep David warm in his old age. Remember that, when he's about to die? And, you know, she's the electric blanket, and that's probably a bad analogy, but she, she's the... She's the gal that's hired to come in because he's got shivers and he's cold. And what's interesting is no one would seem to care about the king, certainly at the end of his life, and and what was going on. I know it would be interesting today, I suppose, between him and this Shulamite servant. But in the text, it goes to great lengths to say there was nothing going on there. There was no amorous connection. There was no sexual relation between this this gal. It's spelled differently, but it's a very close similarity etymologically to the word Shulamite here, and the king. It would make sense, maybe, that that point had to be made if indeed that was the servant here that was married to Solomon. Don't, I'm not making that case, but I am saying it has been made by others, and it's an interesting connection there. Nevertheless, we have people from two different backgrounds, not quite the Romeo and Juliet picture of feuding backgrounds, but certainly clashing backgrounds. And then there's a third group, the chorus palace women, which it's been you know, described in different ways, but it certainly seems like there are some sections where that chorus breaks out in response to what he says and she says, and it seems like they are the court gals, the women of the palace. And that, that does make sense in, in some passages. So the title in the ESV is Others. <clears throat> now there's one passage, if you went to the marriage retreat last year, and Pastor Lucas forced me to preach through Song of Solomon, so I, I did that in one message. I made a comment about chapter 5, verse 1. And I said, I mean, this is the apex of the story, at least the beginning of their marriage, when all this sexual tension is building in the first few chapters, and they get married at the end of chapter 4. That 
is commented on in, in chapter 5, verse 1, and it's labeled others by the ESV. But I'm saying perhaps this one section at the very least, if not a few others, is referring to God. And I'll show you why. Here's the end of chapter 14. She, and this is the, the marriage, the wedding, this is the wedding night. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. I'm trying not to read too much of Song of Solomon. I want to blush in front of you, but wow. And he responds, I came to my garden. And this is a chapter division, but these are just adjacent verses, you understand. I came to my garden. He, Solomon, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Okay, that's a poetic long way to say what you know it's saying, okay? Then you have, grammatically, someone else talking here that's labeled in the ESV, others. I don't know who you invited to your honeymoon, but I didn't have anybody go with me, right? That was a private affair. And yet the response is, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. The precise thing that it says in Proverbs about what we ought to be in our relationships, so intoxicated with the love of our spouse that we don't have eyes or interest for others. That here is a comment in the wedding chamber when they're consummating their relationship. So I do think there are some passages like this that certainly lend to the fact, unless the palace women are peeking through the windows, I I mean, this seems to be God's um, divine commentary on what's going on. So it's hard to read. The ESV makes it better, makes it a little easier because they're doing the work of trying to label what they think is he, she, and others. And some would say there's four groups. I'm saying maybe there is a fourth group in some of these like this perhaps is God's commentary on that particular scene. Others are clearly human beings. All right. Go reread the Song of Solomon. I don't know who gets to start reading that on their birthday, but lucky you. I get to read Ecclesiastes on my birthday. Wouldn't that be cool, though? Does anyone in the room start reading the Song of Solomon on their birthday or their anniversary? That would be even better. All right, I'm sorry. More fun to preach this to singles, I think. A little more reactive than you are. All right, number four, Lamentations. Now, we're really going to shift gears, right? Lamentations. The author is not directly named. The oldest translation is superscription, which, hey, there it is, the Septuagint, uh, attributes this to Jeremiah, which would make a lot of sense, at least rhetorically, linguistically, because Jeremiah's poetic sections in his lengthy major prophet, the book of Jeremiah, has a lot of similarities to what we're reading in Lamentations. So that's helpful. And not to mention the unified early Jewish accreditation to this has been to Jeremiah. This has always been connected with Jeremiah throughout Jewish history, and certainly the church had no evidence or reason to assign it to anyone else. All the way back before the time of Christ, this was connected to Jeremiah. And unless you're reading some seminary textbook, you're probably not going to have any reason to doubt that. The title, which I know you know, I assume you know, a lament, is a song of of grief and and sorrow. It's, It's a poem often to be sung, in another word, that would be a dirge that you would sing at a, at a funeral. Well, this is the dirge to sing at the funeral of a city, not the funeral of a person. And Jeremiah even directs Israel in his book of Jeremiah to lament the city and to grieve. He says in chapter 7, verse 29, hey, cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. We're coming to the end of the southern kingdom and Zedekiah and all the things are going to happen in the, in the deportations. And we're lamenting now Nebuchadnezzar destroying the city. And it's time for us to raise up a lamentation. Some would even point to the fact that he is supplying the lamentation in the book of Lamentations And he wants them to sing this song of of grief and sorrow and tears, the book of Lamentations. The date for it, of course, it's all taking place just at the fresh destruction of Jerusalem. And I don't even need to give you a date for that because you have it memorized. 
Well, you're going to tell me what it is right now. 586 B.C. Southern kingdom falls in 586. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of the city. Poetical features, which I mentioned to you when we introduced poetry last week, but I said to you, this is an acrostic poem, but I want to be more specific about that as I explain it now. And as you read through Lamentations, you might recognize that there's a symmetry to it. It's, a un- it's interesting, though. There's a little mystery to this, and I'll tell you. As I said last week, there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 verses in chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5. It is an acrostic poem in chapter 1 for those 22 verses. Chapter 2, those 22 verses. Chapter 4, those 22 verses. In chapter 3, if you read it in English, you'll see, man, it's a lot longer. Yeah, it's a lot longer because it is an acrostic poem with each verse starting with the next letter of the alphabet after they repeat it three times. So it's 66 verses long. Then there's 22 verses in chapter 5. And I guarantee you there are many dissertations written on this, or at least some. It's not an acrostic poem. And there's lots of theories as to why it's not an acrostic poem, and I have no idea why it's not but it's not an acrostic poem. And just to remind you what an acrostic poem is, you know what it is, right? The letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, goes right down Zion, Hate, Tate, Yodkaf, all the way to Tav, from Aleph to Tav. Then when you have a book that you're going to write an acrostic poem, remember it goes from right to left, not left to right, you're going to say, verse one needs to start now with an Aleph. So they pick a word that starts with Aleph and they write out the sentence. Next one's got to be a Beit. They give us another verse. Gimel, another verse. Dalit, another verse. Hey, another verse. Vav, another verse. Acrostic poems, maybe you wrote one in school, I don't know, in sixth grade or something. In chapter three, the first three verses start with Aleph. In chapter three, the next three verses start with Beit, verses four, five, and six. Seven, eight, and nine, Gimel, and all the way down, and you end up with 66 verses. You get to chapter five, you get 22 verses, 22 Hebrew parallelisms, and you have... No acrostic. Why? I don't know. But it's interesting. It's sad. And yet the chapter 3 that we love so much, which is the longest, that gets great lines like, because of his great mercy we're not consumed, great is thy faithfulness, great is his faithfulness, your faithfulness, that comes in the middle. There's a lot of hope strung in the middle of this dirge. And um, it is a hopeful book. And the third chapter is great. The sovereignty of God, the punishment of God, the wrath of God, the hope of God of taking us through those dark times. Let's talk about the prophets, the time we have left. We've only got three weeks left after this, and we're going to break the 16 prophets into three lectures and try and work our way through them. We're going to talk about the role of the prophet right now to remind ourselves what we're talking about. What is a prophet? Prophet, the word in Hebrew that's used, that translates prophet, nabi in Hebrew, the word nabi means mouthpiece, a megaphone, a conduit. If you were going to take up a megaphone like the cheerleaders did or the yell leaders, whatever they were called, they picked up that thing and really all that did was amplify their voice or a megaphone today with a, an electronic one. But of course, back in their day, the idea of like taking a ram's horn or something and you're making something amplified and you're, you're getting that sound out. Well, of course, a prophet was seen as a mouthpiece of God's message. And in that sense, he was a messenger. Now compare that with the concept of priest. You had three, three offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. God wanted to rule the nation before the monarchy, and he preferred that that happened, at least in his revealed will, if it had waited. We didn't need Saul on the throne yet. If we just dealt with the nation with priests and prophets, 
because that's all you needed, God said, really for us to deal with each other the way we ought to. I'm the king, and he says, you can come to me through the agency of the priesthood. The people can come to God through the priesthood. You're not holy enough to deal with me, but I'm going to put some people there who are going to be all about these ceremonies that are going to represent the fact that all of you are unworthy. But if you just deal with them in dealing with me, I'm going to have this relationship to where I will hear from you through the priest. And then I will speak to you through the Nabi, the mouthpieces, the prophets, and I'll speak to the people. Now, that was the arrangement God had set up, and they forfeited that because they whined about it and wanted to be like every other nation. But the concept here gives us that picture of the people relating to God through the priest, God relating to the people through the prophets. So the prophets, whenever God needed to speak to the people, he used the prophet with some exceptions, rare exceptions. You need to make distinction in your mind because most people think of prophets, they think of someone looking into some crystal ball, seeing the future, coming out and writing a best-selling book about what's, what's yet to come. Matter of fact, we have things called prophecy conferences, or at least the church does, or used to have a lot more of them. And we're going to talk about all the things that are going to happen at the end of time. This is all about eschatology, people think. And so, okay, in the Old Testament, there were prophets, and I know enough to know some of the things they prophesied about had already happened from our perspective, have already happened from our perspective, but they hadn't happened from their perspective. That's the wrong idea of the prophet you need to have in your mind. You need to distinguish in your mind between forthtelling and foretelling. I mean, just to try and give us words that sound alike here, to give us a sense of the distinction. Forthtelling. God giving information to his people. God's very interested in them getting information right now about the problem and how to fix it. And I think of that because most of these prophets came when the nation was tied up in all kinds of compromise and sin and idolatry. He wanted to fix the problem. Here's your problem. Let me diagnose it. Here's how to fix it. It's like having a doctor's appointment. Look at the problem. Let me diagnose it for you. Here's the prognosis. And and, and that's not meant to be a crystal ball prophecy conference, but here is then the solution. God giving them information. The foretelling part of something that hadn't happened yet was there to authenticate the credentials that what I'm telling you is true. I'm going to show you something through my prophets that you wouldn't otherwise be able to have a human being tell you and you'll know the messages from me. And therefore, you're going to recognize while there's lots of predictive prophecy in the Bible, and that's how we like to put an adjective on that and tell us that's what we're talking about. We're qualifying prophecy with predictive prophecy. If you hear me preach and I use the word prophecy, I'll often give you that word in front of it if I'm talking about things that are predicted yet to come in the future. And I don't mean just from our vantage point, even if Jeremiah was predicting the 70-year exile, that it's a prediction it's a, it's a predictive prophecy, even though it's already happened from our perspective, it hadn't from his perspective. The reason he gave those, and, and people could see them come true, was to authenticate his credentials, that he was really speaking the true message. We see that all over the Bible, making that clear. When they wouldn't listen to his message, God would remind them of things like this in Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old. You can look back and see how Israel has played out and how I told you those things would happen before they happened. For I am God, there is no, no, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end, how it's going to turn out, from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I am going to tell people through my prophets what's going to happen ahead of time so that they can listen to me. But that's something no one else can do. Even that statement about the kings was predicted in the Pentateuch. That was 1440s BC. That was something so many years before it actually happened in Deuteronomy. And you've got almost a, uh, you've got hundreds of years transpired, 600 years before any of that came to fruition. And that should have let people in Isaiah's day know that when God speaks through his prophets, uh, he is to be listened to. As Deuteronomy 18 says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, 
that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how will we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? If it's not a real word from, from you through a prophet, well, you'll know when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord if the word does not come to pass or come true. That is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. If he says this is going to happen, it doesn't happen, then what he's saying, that that's supposed to be a credential to show you that it authenticates that he's a spokesman. You don't need to be afraid of what he says. This is not what I'm thinking. Don't, don't listen to the diagnosis because he hasn't given you a, a true predicted prophecy. So the predicted prophecy was almost the frosting on the cake. It was the thing that just let you know that what's inside is to be believed. The fourth telling versus foretelling. The real concern was God speaking to his people. He wanted to talk to his people and tell them what they needed to know. Well, if that's the case, and anyone can stand up and say they're speaking for God, there should be a test for the prophets. And there is. First of all, you should be saying that you speak for God. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will put my words in his mouth, the prophet he's speaking of here. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak, here it is, in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the first thing is, he's saying, these are not just my best thoughts about God. I'm going to tell you what God's thoughts are. Now, we don't have in the scripture a consistent explanation of how these prophets got his words. Sometimes they did explain it through a vision or even Daniel through a dream, perhaps. But we do know that what they're saying is, this isn't just my opinion. This is not my take on things. I'm not just a witness of you know, the times and knowing the signs of the times, like the sons of Issachar, I am telling you what God thinks. So he has to speak for God. And that's an authoritative statement. And that's why through the prophets that we're going to look at, you'll often see the prophets standing up saying, thus saith the Lord, to use the King James translation, here's what the Lord says. Even in our daily readings this last week, how many times did we hear as we're reading the prophets, this is the declaration of the Lord. This is what the Lord said. And and those are the statements you have to have to distinguish it. You're not just speaking as Jeremiah, kind of commentating on the news, but you're speaking clearly in your office as a prophet for God. Secondly, you've got to be 100% accurate in your predicted prophecies. And I just read this, but Deuteronomy 18.20. Someone presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, not just if he speaks in the name of other gods, but if he speaks something that does not come true. That's how the text goes on to explain this in verse 21. Well, you've got to be 100% accurate. That's why today people that are claiming prophecies, and you've been to those churches, I'm sure, where they prophesy over each other, uh, they're trying to say, well, that's a second kind of prophecy, and you don't need to have accuracy about that. Um, Well, there was no definition of a second kind of prophecy in the Bible. You claim to be a spokesperson of God, then we assume you're speaking the truth, and you're going to hold me to account if I obey it or don't obey it, and you're going to prove that to me by your predicted prophecy. They're going to attest to your credentials. It's got to lead the hearers to God and not away from God. Now, this is a mind blower that should remind you of the coming tribulational period. This is what God says in Deuteronomy 13. You could have a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arise among you, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Now, you've just now checked off one of the One of the requirements of a prophet, how do I know whether it's a real prophet or not? Well, he just did it. He did something, and it's not something he should be able to do on his own. It's something that's foretold, and it happened. If he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, or let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. God's doing that on purpose. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Oh, man. I've got to be that discerning? I can't just say he did something and it was beyond what a human being should do. He predicted the future and it came to pass. Now you're saying I've got to make sure that the fruit of that and and the message that comes along with that is going to lead me closer to God, not away from God. It's going to lead me to the truth of God. Wow, that's hard. 
Happens all the time, though. How many times do I get caught in the lobby or on the patio or in the emails or whatever it is? This guy really did this miraculous thing. Well, even as it says about the Great Tribulation, the man who's coming to deceive the world will come with all kinds of signs and wonders. They're called false signs and wonders, not because they're not real signs and wonders. It's because it leads them away from God and not to God. In that case, away from Christ, the Antichrist, and not to Christ. That's why you have to be more discerning than even if you, if you had a miracle take place right in front of your eyes and someone suspends natural law, it wouldn't prove they were from God. That's all I'm saying. As a matter of fact, the next wave of truly miraculous gifts that are going to land on this planet won't come from real apostles or prophets. They'll come from the work of the Antichrist, according to the Bible. Number four, they have to have integrity. Much like your pastors today should have integrity, that's what's required of them. So in the Old Testament, the prophet, if he's going to speak for God, should have integrity. Micah talks about this when he says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophet. There he's speaking in the name of God, right? Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. They cry peace when they have something to eat. In other words, when the offering's good, but they declare war against them who puts nothing in their mouths. You're not paying me enough for this gig. That seer, he goes on to say, will be disgraced and will be put to shame. In other words, it will be proved that he's not a real prophet. So a prophet who in some way is either, as it says in the New Testament, a preacher who's greedy for gain, he should be disqualified from his job because if he's going to change what he prophesies based on how he's being treated, then that's a problem. We saw that and we're seeing that in our daily Bible reading. There's a price to pay sometimes for telling the truth. And a real prophet is a man of integrity and he doesn't bend or doesn't change just because it costs him or vice versa. He can't be hired to say whatever you want the person who hires you to say. You've got to speak the truth. That's a good example of the test of a prophet has to have integrity. All right. Letter D, I want to distinguish in your own thinking between speaking and writing prophets. We're about to enter into a study of the writing prophets of the Old Testament. The writing prophets of the Old Testament have left us a record of what they preached, what God spoke through them doesn't mean that's all the prophets we have in the Old Testament. You can't count up the Old Testament prophets and say, oh, we have 16 prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, You wouldn't even be counting Elijah and Elisha, two of the most well-known prophets of the Old Testament. But we're studying the writing prophets. So let us remember that God clearly had in mind to, uh, to inscribe some prophetic words that had a purpose that were going to last through the generations. He sent prophets to the people who spoke things that were predicted that came true. They were never recorded. He came to diagnose problems in people's nations and lives through the prophets of the Old Testament, never wrote anything down, and it wasn't recorded. But as Romans chapter 15 says, whatever was written, when it was written down, whether it be a narrative of the Old Testament, the wisdom literature of Solomon, or whether it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, whoever it was, it was written for our instruction. It's for us to learn from. So that through endurance... And through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And it is interesting how so many of the prophets that we're going to study give us warning, they give us a diagnosis, they warn us about a prognosis, they give us a solution, and they always remind us of the hope that if we respond rightly to God's solution, the remedy, that we'll have hope. And of course, the classic passage, you know, all Scripture, and of course, from a New Testament perspective, we were looking at all those 16 writing prophets, not just the law and the wisdom literature, the writing, but also the prophets, breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Not saying that those other prophets didn't say things that were profitable, but these are the profitable things that God expects us throughout the ages to equip ourselves in so that you as a man or person of God, a woman of God can be complete, equipped for every good work. So we study the writing prophets because God in his sovereignty chose to take those 16 prophets and have their messages fully recorded for us in their writings. The major versus the minor prophets. Every Sunday school student learns from the time they're little kids there are major prophets and minor prophets. 
The problem is there's really no difference between major and minor prophets other than the length of their book. And that's unfortunate because we make a distinction and we give them category titles. And it'd be much better had we come up with other category titles like the one we're going to end with here tonight to categorize them by audience would have been a much better way for us to give names and titles to prophets. But instead, we've called them major and minor prophets. Now, we say there's four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And we say, well, the rest of them are the minor prophets. Well, the only thing that makes a minor prophet is that their book is shorter than the major prophets, which doesn't seem worthy of a category because it leads us astray. We think that major means it's a major message and the others have minor messages. Well, we'll read clearly that a lot of the minor prophets had some pretty major messages. They're all major messages and everything was written for us, for our instruction. So that, to me, is almost a superfluous distinction. You should think more in terms of there are 16 prophets, writing prophets of the Old Testament. If you want to categorize them, then I'll give you a chart. We'll categorize them by audience. And you have a chart. And it's a chart, of course, that you can see just because the boxes and we have to write in them. It is not to scale. So the scale of the centuries that roll by on the left-hand side, I know they don't line up perfectly. I understand that. But here they are in chronological order and in category order. Two to the north, three to the foreign nations, and the remainder to the south. Of course, we had three kings of the United Kingdom. We had a split with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Jeroboam went off to the north. We had two kingdoms. The kingdom of the north fell in 721. That's why we don't have any other prophets after that 8th century BC. And the foreign nations, those came early. And the southern, we've got right on down the middle here. So let's go through these real quick, and I'll give you the names next to the years here. Let's start with the two prophets to the north. Amos in 760 BC. Amos, 760. Joel, 830. I wanted to do these in the order that we're going to study them, and we're going to study them, the two northern and the three foreign, and then we'll do the pre-exilic, and then we'll do the exilic and post-exilic. Nevertheless, we'll get it all filled in here. Obadiah, 845. Obadiah went to Edom. We'll talk about his foreign trip to Edom. If you've been to Jordan, we've got our church out there. You've seen Indiana Jones right into that Petra there. That's what that uh, prophecy was about, actually. Hosea is the other prophet to the north. Micah, 735. Jonah. Where did Jonah go? You know where Jonah went? Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of what? The kingdom of Assyria. Bummer. Okay. I'm gonna br- we're going to start next week with that chart. Okay? <laughs> no, we are. I, I, I did a whole other revision on it. I corrected dates. I rearranged. And then I put the, all the sequencing right. So bring this next time, though, because I can't fit all that we're going to cover on the worksheet for next time. This, this one's right. Mine's wrong. So... That's a great way to end. That feels so good. It's like striking out in the ninth inning, you know? It's like, it's like the Dodgers going to the World Series and losing in the seventh game at home. That's what it feels like. And I'm not even a baseball fan. All right. Well, we'll get you out five minutes early. Let's pray. God, thank you very much for the fact that we've gotten to a place in our Old Testament study where we get to really listen to the preachers of the Old Testament and their messages. And much like John the Baptist, which Jesus said was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, we're going to see those preachers preaching some very honest sermons about things that were going wrong in these nations. And God, for people that love you and love your truth, I know it's like Proverbs says, that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. They were men that loved Israel. They loved Judah. They loved these foreign nations. Some didn't like Jonah, but they still went and obediently spoke the truth And because of that, God, they had uh, power. Those words had power. Of course, they had power because they came from you. But we have a chance now, even in our relationships and counseling and discipleship and partnering people and 
teaching, we have a chance to reiterate your truth and to do it without compromise. Thank you for the uncompromising prophets that we're going to get into studying next week. God, we thank you for the chance to study these things. We even thank you for the technology we have. Even when, I, when it messes me up tonight, I think about how great it is to have a laptop and to have software and to be able to study so many commentaries on my computer software. What a great benefit we have. Help us be good stewards of all these things and use them well. So God, I pray you'd encourage us as we leave, as we think about the wisdom literature we studied tonight, to be people that live out your truth. Let us put your truth on display as we become people that don't just hear your word, but put it into practice. And you said when we do, as that great passage in Matthew 7 says, we'll be like wise men who build our house on the rock. So give us that kind of stability and sturdy life as we trust in you, unafraid of what happens in the world. As the psalmist said, just unafraid by bad news. We're not fearful. It's about the fact that we know we're stable in our relationship with you. Make that the reality as we walk with you, as we fear you, as we respond to you, as we ought to. Thanks for your truth, God. Let it saturate our minds and our hearts even as we go to sleep tonight, wake up, and go about our tasks tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.